Bab usually starts by recording for like the first five minutes of babble we go through, just in case we end up doing anything. Yeah, I know that. Babble. That's been really annoying to edit. (laughs) Welcome to a glass of seawater. There's a new voice saying those uh, words, and hopefully we'll have a few new voices saying those words in the future. But if you don't recognise me, I'm Will. I've been in a few before. And joining me today, I have Charlie. Hello. Uh, Chris Murphy. Hello. And Kate Lancaster. Hi. I use second names for the other two because they're impressive academics. <laughs> Charlie That's and subjective. I are just... <laughs> yeah. We're we'll academics. We'll, we'll take it. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so we have gathered here to talk about chirped pulse amplification, which hopefully, if listeners have been paying attention to the news, has got some attention recently. Because it's just won the Nobel Prize for Physics. Cool. Well done then. Indeed. So, who, Charlie, Charlie how, how well rehearsed are you for this episode? Who who won? Um, you remember? Okay, in terms of like Nobel Prize, I have no idea. Um, I actually didn't know it had been awarded. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's how, that's how well prepared I am. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie's not a laser plasma guy. Um, yeah, so I actually work in diagnostics, so I'm very interested to hear. About lasers and stuff. Yay! Excellent. So yeah, the actual uh, winners. Well, there were three, but we're, we're only going to talk about two today. Uh, we're talking about Gerard Maru and Donna Strickland, who have won it for this major development in chirp pulse amplification, uh, which we'll go into in this episode. And for Donna, it's a particularly big achievement for being the first woman in fifty-five years to win the Nobel Prize, and only the third one in history, and also the first what the first non-nuclear. Girl power. <laughs> but I will just mention that the uh, third winner was Arthur Ashkin, who won it for optical tweezers, which is also really cool part Super of laser cool. physics. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, but we're not going to talk about that at all. First of all, we're going to be talking about a lot about laser intensity today. <laughs> so, <laughs> who wants to run me through what the difference is between intensity rather than energy and power? What do we mean specifically by intensity? Okay, well, I'll take that one. Um, So the energy of the system is, in general, for a pulsed laser system, which is what we're talking about today. For a pulsed laser system, the energy we refer to is the energy contained inside the pulse. And since the pulse has a duration, the energy divided by the time or the duration of that pulse gives us the peak power. Uh, We have the peak power, which could be, and normally we'd talk about power in terms of watts. These are huge laser systems with very short pulses. So instead we talk about gigawatts, terawatts, or even petawatts. And if we take that intensity in watts and focus it down to a very small area, we have what we define in laser plasma physics as intensity, which is watts per square centimetre. The kind of intensities we're talking about are things like 10 to the power 21 watts per square centimetre, which, to put in perspective, is about the amount of, about the intensity you would reach if you were to focus down all the light arriving to the Earth from the Sun and focus it down to about a square centimetre. You're talking about these kind of intensities, which would burn more than an ant. Mm. (laughs) So I always find kind of funny with intensity, you always get such large numbers, but in terms of actual energy, there's really not much in the beam at all. So talking usually around 100 joules, maybe even less than that. And 100 joules is about the amount of energy you get from dropping a pound coin from a metre high is about the energy of the impact. (laughs) I always That's... like to think about, like, when we're talking about these big lasers, you know, for the ones for fusions like megajoules, 
I mean, the, the chemical energy in a Kit Kat, a four-bar Kit Kat, is about a megajoule. That's, you know, it, it's sort of pitiful, really, when you think <laughs> about it. It's just the fact that you're delivering it in such a short space of time that gives these lasers their awesome power. Yeah, yeah the same energy transfer would need a million people eating a million Kit Kats per second <laughs> in order to get the same that, power transfer. I'm now thinking about that. Yeah, that doesn't actually yeah. sound like... It's a fundy out. Yeah. <laughs> Was that, is that a million people eating a million Kit Kats each? Each, yes. Okay. yes. Oh, okay, no, okay, fine. That sounds like a lot more Kit Kats. I thought you meant a million people eating one Kit Kat each. Yeah. No, I mean, no, we've no. all given it a go, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's four million fingers. <laughs> Okay, so so now that we've laid out uh, what intensity actually is, so we can we can jump back a bit down to around the late 80s when we were when we first invented the laser, we came up with uh, fancy ways to get these really short pulses like Q switching and mode locking, and I won't go into those because we've recorded an episode all about that. But by the late 1980s, we were plateauing in the intensities that we could reach. We were struggling to go to the next step. So so we wanted to explain what what the problem was with with reaching that next step why we were well i mean one of the i mean you can just keep putting energy into the pulse but ultimately at the end of the day the the power and indeed the intensity going through these amplifying mediums can end up damaging the amplifying mediums it might be worth putting into context what a laser actually looks like right because you're probably all used to these little laser pointers of a milliwatt uh, we're talking about lasers that are 10 to the 15 watts, right? So that's a petawatt. So what ends up happening is you, you start with a little seed pulse that goes into a series of amplifiers of whatever your lasing medium is. So in big glass laser systems, for example, it's neodymium glass. So it's glass doped with uh, the element neodymium makes it lovely and pink. Um, and you start off with these tiny little rod amplifiers and the 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 laser basically, the seed laser basically passes through and gets amplified through these smaller rods, bigger rods, and then eventually the rods uh, amplify these pulses unevenly. So you have to go to disc amplifiers, and then basically your light comes out the end. But the point is, these uh, these amplifiers fill rooms something like an Olympic swimming pool in size or two Olympic swimming pools in size. So it's just rooms full of these amplifier um, pieces of amplified glass and. And then the medium in which you put the energy in, which is big flash lamps, which you'll hear about in the in the laser episode. Um, so so it's worth thinking about that when you think about the context of of, of these lasers. And so the size of the amplifier, uh, you can't get you know infinitely big, right? Because of the way that these lasers are amplified. So eventually, you need to find a way of throwing more energy into that pulse without damaging the lasing medium. I think that's the point. That's the fundamental tenet of CPA. And what we were saying, uh, it's intensity that causes damage. So you need some way, oh, you can't, you can increase the energy, but if you fancy ways, you can still reduce the intensity. Yeah. So if you can get that intensity reduced, you won't be damaging yeah. more. And if you have enough, but if you have enough amplifier, then like amplification material, and you just spread it out enough and you spread the energy through it, then you could essentially get more and more energy. And then it's just about focusing, right? It's just, it costs money, it costs space to have this much amplifier. Exactly. And and right. even to the same point, like a, a good example of this is if you look at York Minster and you look at the windows, they're all stained glass. And the reason that, I mean, the back window of York Minster is about the size of a, of a tennis court and it's made of stained glass because you can't make a single pane of glass that big and still be um, flat and, and strong enough. 
And so this is the same kind of problem that we have with modern amplifiers is you can't make a piece of glass that's perfect and huge at the same time. Yeah. And so you ha- that limits your ability to make large pieces of glass of high quality and high flatness, limits your ability to, um, to make these amplifiers bigger and bigger and bigger. And because the intensity is the energy divided by the time and then divided by the area... You either have to make the time bigger or make the area bigger. And this is the cross-sectional area, so you can't just make the glass thicker, you have to make it wider in extent. And that's where you get into problems. So now now I guess we go on to talk about what chirped pulse amplification did. Or I guess we could say CPA from now. We've said chirp pulse amplification and I'm already struggling to say yeah. it. So I once wrote a song... Uh... To the tune of Supercalifragilis, uh, called oh, yeah. Optical <laughs> Parametric Chirp Pulse Amplification, because it is such a mouthful. Uh, so yeah, right. Even though, this, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. Quite yeah. exactly. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. There's a lot of time waiting between laser shots. Let me just tell you that. Yeah. And yeah. CPA is essentially how we got past this need for bigger and bigger amplifiers, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that one of the important things, so you said it was intensity that damages the amplifiers. That in general is true. It sometimes can be what we call fluence, where the, the pulse duration is less important, but that tends to be for very, very short pulses. Mm. That, so at picosecond and nanosecond pulses, the fluence. But that's a surface effect. When it's in the bulk, it really is the intensity. And the reason, the, the, the mechanism for that damage is actually that the field, the electric and magnetic fields that make up a laser, because it's light, so it's an electromagnetic wave, those fields become sufficiently strong that they can rip the electrons out of the atom. And therefore, we exceed the ionization threshold for the material and we cause damage to the amplifying medium. And that's really the, the mechanism that causes the damage to the amplifier. And then little bits of the laser end up self-focusing in that medium, so you get all these hot spots and stuff and it just breaks the beam up and it's really ugly and messy. Yeah, it's not like just... some big explosion of amplifier. It's just little bits become imperfect and it slowly just degrades as yeah. well. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned the petawatt laser and that's with CPA. What sort of intensities did we have before CPA? What's, what did CPA allow us to do? Is it several orders of magnitude? Mm. So yeah. times 10, times 100? So or... we sort of moved from an area, uh, sort of a, a world of science where we were kind of looking at what we would call what we would now term as LPI, isn't it? Laser plasma interactions are sort of the way that laser light um, is absorbed and then scattered back via various things like um, stimulated brilliant scattering and SRS and things like that. You don't want to worry about what these things are. Once we started exceeding about 10 to the 18 watts per square centimetre, we kind of entered what we would call the relativistic era, which meant we were able to accelerate particles to some substantial fraction of the speed of light. Uh, and and a lot of physics associated with that it's been just so yeah it was it was going sort of every so often at a constant rate increasing magnitude every like five ish years or something then it plateaued in the 1980s and then as soon as we discovered cpa it started going well it's not quite linear because it's linear in magnitude so (laughs) yeah sure yeah physicists 10 to the 16 10 to the 17 10 to the 18 so exponential yeah Um, but anyway, we haven't actually got onto what CPA is, so true. <laughs> uh, we should probably cover that at some point in this episode. So, Charlie, do you want to do you want to tackle that one? Um, <laughs> actually, I think I could give it a okay. good yeah, go. Go, go, go. Go for it. Well, so I've had a little read on it, and as far as I understand, 
So intensity is all about the amount of power and the amount of area, or the amount of energy spread onto a piece of area over an amount of time. So if you can spread this energy over a longer amount of time, then you can amplify it separately, you can amplify the components separately, and then you squidge that back down into your short amount of time, and now you have more power, but you still, you're using the same amplification medium, right? Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get more bang for your buck, essentially. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, essentially taking your pulse and you're, you're stretching it out. So how exactly do you spread out this energy and time? Like, how do you... Because light all travels at the same speed. So if your laser is all traveling at the same speed, how do you slow mm-hmm. that down? So this is where we upset a lot of high school physics teachers. <laughs> and we start um, letting you into secrets that we probably... You would never have found out otherwise. Uh, laser light is considered by most people to be monochromatic. It has a single colour, single wavelength, and so you get green pointers and you get red pointers and blue pointers. For short pulse lasers, that's not really true. That In order to support a short pulse, it turns out you need to have a variety of colours, if you want, or a variety of wavelengths or frequencies contained inside that short pulse. And just like uh, white light going through a prism, it can split into different um, colours angularly. So this is sort of like when your light goes through um, glass, you get a prism shape because the light has travelled different lengths throughout the light. Is it sort of like that? So you've separated it into the... Right? Dispersion, right? It's, it's yeah. dispersion. Yeah, yeah. it's exactly yeah. that. But except in this case, we're using a pair of gratings and gratings are kind of set of jagged edges, essentially, which yeah. disperse the light out into its constituent colours. In fact, chirp means uh, that the pulse is actually varying in frequency with time. Okay. And a positive chirp is when the red is at the front of the pulse, and a negative chirp is when the blue is at the front of the pulse. And so, basically, they're just travelling different paths, which ends up impacting in time the pulse, so you end up stretching it out in time. And so in order to do the reverse, you just have an opposite pair of gratings, which puts a negative chirp on the pulse, which means blue is back at the front and everyone's happy again. Okay, yeah, so you ah, so you mentioned the these gratings to do your focusing and sort of defocusing at the front. It's right? not so much focusing, it's dispersing. Dispersing, yeah. dispersing okay. and compressing. Ah, the comp- ah, okay, so, yeah, because my problem was that once you manage to compress it again into this big, high-power pulse, why aren't your compressors being damaged but... Do they have much so different limits? in time, not space. So, right. <laughs> and also, it's also the difference between transmissive medium and reflective medium. So your amplifiers are at risk because the laser actually travels through them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so that's the block, the transmissive amplifier is what you put between your stretcher and your amplifier. Uh, sorry, your stretcher and your compressor. Everything either side of that, well, especially after the compressor, is reflective. So the laser actually doesn't travel through, it just bounces off. So you don't damage your reflective medium in the same way that you would your amplifiers. I mean, they do have a damage threshold, which is why when, for example, the Vulcan Petawatt laser beam comes into its fu- comes off of its final optic, the final optic is a metre right. in diameter. <laughs> it, so, you know, it then that is the focusing optic which takes it down to the five microns that you need to, to focus on to target. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's only compressing in time, not in space, the, the, uh, the CPA technique. I also just wanted to say... But if you ever get to look at the stretcher or the compressor point of a laser, 
in like these really big laser systems that you can walk into. I always think it's the coolest part because, well, literally just because the gratings are basically rainbow mirrors. Because because they have this dispersion of light, they, if you get a nice white light coming across them, they look all fa fancy and shiny and all different <laughs> colours. All the rest of the laser, you can't really tell what's going on. But like diffraction gratings always look really cool. And these yeah. are big, big diffraction gratings yeah. as well. Yeah, so you mentioned this compressor that was a metre long. Um, oh no, what, the compressor well, the compressor's meters and meters. Right. Yeah, and it. yeah, we'll just mention that you walk into these laser yeah, facilities yeah. and well, I, just because of the nature of the work that I do, I've only ever seen like laser pens. How how big uh, is the actual equipment for these lasers? Well, yeah, because say I was mentioning the final optic is a meter. Yeah. So, okay, the final so optic. So the gratings are on the order of that too. So the 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 compressor the compressor chamber in Vulcan Petwalk, for example, kind of looks like Jabba the Hutt's palace. So it's probably like 10, 10, 15, yeah, 12 meters long, you know, a few meters off the ground. You know, these are, this is serious vacuum technology. You have to get like a shipping company to make the chambers in order to, you know, to suffice. It's These are unprecedented kind of sizes. I mean, people have done better now, obviously, but when it was made back in, back in the day when I was a PhD student, 2001 2002 we had to you know we had to go to a shipping company to get to get these things welded together uh so briefly because we are a fusion podcast although i try and put as much laser stuff in let's briefly mention what cpa lasers are actually used for in fusion because the big fusion scale experiments so nif actually doesn't need to reach these sort of uh, intensities to drive an ICF in comp uh, compression. So we were talking about the difference between intensity and energy. NIF goes for high energy rather than high intensity. So they're still only about 10 to the 14, uh, maybe 10 to the 15 uh, watts per square centimeter. Uh, but well, I'll hand over to Kate because she's definitely the most qualified person in the building <laughs> to talk about what the big lasers in ICF are used for. Yeah, so, so certainly with what you were describing with NIF, you've got these uh, implosions you're getting to high densities, but you kind of want to know what's going on inside. One of the ways is it emits neutrons and you can image and also measure the spectrum of those neutrons, as we've talked about in other, other versions of this podcast. Um, but what you can also do is use an ultra-intense laser like what we've just been describing, shoot it into a, a small wire to produce what we call a backlighter source. So it's a bright source of X-rays, which we can then use to take a radiograph of the imploding sphere. And you can do it at different times. Uh, steps to look at the history of the implosion and it tells you something about uh, how the implosion has gone the symmetry and also the density uh, which this uh, implosion gets to so that's one thing so it can be used as a diagnostic also on the other side which is sort of my my little pet project well not my own entirely of course <laughs> is something called fast ignition so when we were talking about this on the ICF episode, I mentioned that, you know, conventional IC, uh, ICF is kind of like a, a diesel engine where you compress the fuel until it self-ignites. Fast ignition is kind of like the petrol engine equivalent of that, where you compress the fuel first and then use an ultra-intense laser to produce copious amounts of high electrons, which then travel in and deposit their energy in the fuel. So it's that ultra-intense laser that produces this mega-amp current of electrons. That's a fundamental part of fast ignition. Without without the ultra-intense laser that's enabled by this CPA, we wouldn't be able to do fast ignition. I mean, we can't anyway at the moment. <laughs> but that's physics reasons. That's not that's not anything to do with the laser. So cool. There we go. Fusion fusion category satisfied. We can go back to talking Tick. about lasers. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so since CPA, we 
like we sort of briefly mentioned earlier, we've been going up exponentially in uh, laser intensity. Uh, so the next step is um, a facility that's built being built in three different places in Europe. Indeed. Um, all, and I've only remembered two, so I'm going to Chris can tell us which three they are. <laughs> um, but it's the Extreme Light Infrastructure, um, otherwise called Eli, um, which is Gerard Murray, who um, we mentioned earlier is one of the Nobel Prize winners. Is um, I don't know if he, he was the original uh, proposer, I guess, right. of the project, although he's not so involved in it yeah. at the moment. And yes, indeed, the initial plan was to build a massive laser facility that would reach exawatt intensities. So our exawatt powers, even. What's um, an exawatt? <laughs> an exawatt is a thousand times more than a petawatt. <laughs> um, and so the and it was built in three Eastern European countries um, with three plans for building up laser experience and technology and infrastructure. Um, with one being called Eli Beamlines, which is in Prague in the Czech Republic, and one being called Eli Alps, which is looking at creating ultra-short attosecond pulses. That's a thousand times shorter than a femtosecond, or a million times shorter than a picosecond. <laughs> uh, and it was built. It's it's currently built in uh, Zeged in Hungary, and then the Eli NP or Eli Nuclear Physics, which is a facility being built up to try and exploit the extreme conditions in the focus of a, uh, of a high-intensity laser to do nuclear physics, and that's been built in Magorelli, which is now skirts of Bucharest in Romania. So this is these are all facilities that have been unlocked by CPA, next step in laser physics. Indeed, indeed. They, they would never have been there if it wasn't for CPA. So what sort of intensities? We, so uh, my little Google search uh, this morning led me to the Guinness Book of World Records for intensity was 2 times 10 to the 22 I say that with more confidence because I know the answer. Two times ten to the twenty-two <laughs> watts per square centimeter. Um, that's a Guinness Book of World Record record in twenty fourteen. So this new facility is going to blow that out of the water, right? Indeed, there's, there's a few uh, around the world actually. Um, both in there's one in France called Apollon. There's a couple in uh, Russia and in China. Um, but the one at Eli NP, the nuclear physics facility in um, Romania, is expected hopefully going to reach 10 to the power 24 watts per square centimetre, so 50 times greater than the Hercules laser system that was mentioned as being the world record holder at the moment. So that's like a whole new regime of physics, right? Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what sort of physics can we unlock with this new laser intensity? So I am uh, slightly disingenuously going to talk about all the things you can do if you were to ever reach 10 to the power 29 watts per square centimetre. <laughs> Um, so as we talked about the fact that if the intensity, the electric field becomes strong enough, it can rip electrons out. And that's what causes the damage to the lasers, which resulted in the need for CPA. Um, so if your intensity becomes strong enough, uh, you can actually rip electrons out with a vacuum. So these kind of effects happen in, in the universe at like the edge of a black hole at the event horizon. So and that's what really gives rise to under, uh, to under or Hawking radiation that comes from a black hole. So understanding that would be really interesting if we could reach 10 to the 29 watts per square centimetre. And of course, as I said, we're only going to reach 10 to the 24 watts per square centimetre. So, you know, how is that possibly going to be any use to look at these, these physics effects? And the answer is we effectively set up a little mini um, laser wind tunnel, effectively. <laughs> the point is that you don't need to reach 10 to the 29 watts per square centimetre if you're hitting a target that is flying towards you coming the other way. 
And the plan for LINP is to collide the 10 to the 24 watts per square centimetre laser with a relativistic electron bunch coming the other way. And you get basically a Lorentz upshift, if you want the maths, um, but you effectively can witness things uh, that um, would only otherwise happen in the strong field limit. And that is this limit when you get close to the Schwinger limit, which is the point at which electric fields can break down vacuum. Yeah, I was. You said relativistic target, and I started to think, "What? How fast is this thing?" But then you said electrons; it sort of makes yeah. sense. A target is actually yeah. a so what? So what you're doing is you're taking a particle accelerator for your electrons, or how you're producing those electrons. Well, that's my research. So, <laughs> so one of the things I, I study is is looking at how lasers can be used to make particle accelerators incredibly small. So all the uh, so the the fields that you can generate in order to accelerate particles are limited again by this ionization breakdown limit. However, if you use a plasma as your accelerating medium, you no longer have that limit. And so the fields you can use are much stronger and you can create uh, particle accelerators that are much smaller than conventional accelerators by using plasma as the acceleration medium. And is this... This is wake field This is laser right? wake field acceleration. Right, okay. Which, yeah, exactly. yeah, we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, just for we, context yeah. when we get to Laser's episode, depending on yeah. when yeah. that gets released. We have we have little Chris to go over Laser Wakefield. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Probably Chris. big Chris for the Nobel Prize episode. But <laughs> I appreciate little that. Chris, little Chris can do, do the best. No, this yeah, might not I'm... be funny to people that have no idea the fact that all of Chris's research group, bar one person, is called Chris. Uh, so this no. is the case. <laughs> I actually didn't know that. That sounds like that sounds like a scheme. <laughs> Indeed, I, I could explain why, but it will become clear soon enough. But it's too late. <laughs> uh, and actually, to, to to kind of to kind of bring things around again a little bit back into laser amplifiers, you might be saying that if you can use plasma as the medium for an accelerator, so that you don't have to worry about the breakdown, can you use plasma as the medium for an amplifier? so that you also don't have to worry about the medium and you don't have to stretch and compress the pulse again. Plasma inception. And the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, the answer, well, perhaps. Yeah. There's a lot of work going on in two different schemes, one called Raman amplification and one called Brillouin amplification, where you actually, instead of using a glass amplifier, where the structure of the glass is such that it allows amplify, amplification of the laser, um, you can now use... Uh, generated waves and structures inside a plasma to provide this same nonlinear medium in order to amplify laser pulses using a plasma, which might be the next big thing after CPA in order to overcome the limits which we're now butting up against um, with the limits of technology of CPA. Mm. The next question is how do you make a plasma that's meters across and make it stable? Tuck a Mac. Exactly. So, <laughs> so it turns out... Oh, it yeah. turns out that the oh applications start spinning around again. Uh, we're maybe looking at how to generate stable plasmas might be the next thing that we could do That's in laser amplifiers. Tokamak might actually be useful. For <laughs> yeah, so, so Will's looking very suggestive at me because in theory I work on Tokamaks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where did the naughty light go? I don't know. Where did the naughty light go? To prism! <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's the best like, joke in the world! I, I think that's probably a brilliant place to end <laughs> this very good episode <laughs> on CPA. That well, was a great episode. That was a really fun episode. I learnt so much. Same. 
even though I may have not been in it. Same. So I think uh, for our many listeners, we would really appreciate if you subscribe to our podcast on whatever app you're listening on. Yeah, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Just search A Glass of Seawater and we'll come right up. Finally, just uh, if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful. That would really help us. It greatly increases the visibility of the podcast, probably more than anything else. And tell all your friends and enemies. That was a really good episode. I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. See you next time for the next glass of seawater. Bye.